0: Boop boop boop!
2: I'm Dave Musgrove and this is the BBC History Magazine podcast for the week of 22 March 2012 and this is of course the podcast sister to Britain's best-selling history magazine. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription and now on Kindle too. Go to historyextra.com slash Kindle or just search for us on Amazon to find out more about that. We can also be found on facebook.com slash Extra and twitter.com slash history extra. Coming up this week... He had a vision
3: of Englishness which
2: didn't actually exist. That was Professor Sir Dermot McCulloch on the role of religion in the creation of Englishness.
4: In reading that letter, it's when you can once again be as close as possible to to that loved one.
2: And that was Sean Price talking about soldiers' farewell letters. Before we get started, please bear with me for a little announcement. A new optimised version of BBC History magazine is now available on the iPad. You can find us on the Apple newsstand or just go to our website, historyextra.com forward slash iPad for more information. And as a little reminder, Kindle users can also still download the magazine. Go to historyextra.com forward slash Kindle for more on that. So, the recently knighted Professor of the History of the Church at Oxford University, Dermot McCulloch, is presenting a new series on BBC Two this month. In a three-part series entitled How God Made the English, he's exploring how Christianity has forged the personality of the English people. I caught up with him to get an idea of the themes he's pursuing, and the first question I asked him was to outline his basic contention with the series.
3: Yes, the whole point about Englishness is that it was created by the church. Uh, There was no such thing as the English when Anglo-Saxons arrived, uh, and there wasn't for centuries after that. But then Christianity from Rome turned up, to add to the Christianity which was already in these islands. And that created a single church, which gave rise to the idea that there might be a single people. And and so the curious thing is that this people was created by Christianity. It was marked out by its loyalty to the Pope. And the next thing we say in the story of Englishness is that Henry VIII turned the whole thing round. So that in his reformation, his break with Rome, he made the mark of being English, hating the Pope. So until the 16th century, being English is to love the Catholic Church after Henry VIII's reign in the 16th century, it is to hate the Catholic Church. And and that's an illustration of the way that every national identity, not just Englishness, but every national identity, is made up. It's made up for purposes. But it's not any less real because of that. And that's why I thought it was so important, so urgent, to look at this question of Englishness. Because once more, these islands are in a state of change, transition.
2: Okay. I'll just take you back to the the start of the story then. You talked about the the, the Roman mission, uh, the the Roman Christian mission, which came in under Augustine, wasn't it, in 597. Um, But there was already... A, a branch of Christianity in the country, wasn't there, that it came come back from Ireland, come via Iona down. So that was the, the Irish, the Celtic Christianity. So how does that, how do those two stories play into into the start of this idea of Englishness then? The fact that we already had something that was Christian.
3: There's a slightly uneasy relationship between the Christianity which was already in these islands before five nine seven common era and this roman mission which came from pope gregory the great and came in with augustine they don't actually get on terribly well and actually one of the missing bits of the story are those christians who were in what we call england when augustine arrived Uh, most of what we know is through great uh, anglo-saxon historian bede and Bede tells us what he wants us to know. And he's very dismissive of these Christians before Augustine, particularly in those parts of the islands uh, which interested the Anglo-Saxons. He's quite happy with Celtic Christians who were beyond the Anglo-Saxons' interests, such as the great Columba of Iona. Very nice about them. Mm. But he's not at all nice about Welsh Christians for instance and the, the relationship went on being uneasy because Bede and the sort of Christianity he represented was very loyal to Rome very loyal Celts not so much uh, they were in communication with Rome but that wasn't the great thing for them and you see that tension working through the centuries after 597.
2: So is, is Bede the the key player in the in the early story would you say?
3: Bede wrote the story That's why he's the key player. He had a vision of Englishness which didn't actually exist at the time. He sat in his library in the monastery at Jarrow and Monk Wearmouth up in what we now think of the very north of England, the Kingdom of Northumbria for him. That was the political reality at the time, the Kingdom of Northumbria, a bit of what we now call England. But Bede had this much wider picture uh, of a people he called the Gens Anglorum, the people of the Angli. And it was these Angli who uh, became the English. Uh, But that's not for some time, for much more than a century, after the time of Bede.
2: So what the, where did Bede get this idea from? It was Bede, did Bede just conjure this up and say this is something that he wanted to see?
3: No, no, no. He, he got it from the place you'd expect a monk to get it from, the Bible. And what he saw, there was a single people, a single kingdom called Israel. And they were God's chosen people. So the idea was that his people would now be a second Israel. They would be a chosen people now for God. And the mark of their chosenness was that they were very loyal to the Pope, the Bishop of Rome.
2: So from the time of Bede, there was a concept that it, the English were a chosen people.
3: Yes, and uh, the first of our programmes plays around with that idea, investigates it, and we're suggesting that it's still there. It was there when Henry VIII broke with Rome. It was there again when the English did a deal with the Protestant Scots to create a new identity called Britishness, and the English lent this idea of being a chosen people, a sacred nation, to the British. And now I think the interesting thing is that Britishness is very much under question. It was created because we were creating a world empire. And we've now given up a world empire. So really at the present day there, there is a, a very perceptible tendency for Britishness to fade And the other identities of these islands, the older identities, Englishness, Scottishness, Welshness, Irishness, these identities are coming to the fore. And what I wanted to suggest to the viewer is that we need to think very carefully about what Englishness is next, when it's already been these two very different things, Anglo-Saxon Englishness, Henry VIII's Englishness, and then a third thing, Britishness, what happens next?
2: Do you have any observations on
3: that? I think historians should be very wary about being prophets. But what we can point out is simply that that's happening. And that there are certain people who could take that Englishness in a very undesirable direction. To suggest, for instance, that there is a race called the English, and there really isn't. That's something we deal with in one of our later programmes. That this is an idea, an identity which is about... A place, I guess you'd say, and that we shouldn't attach some false idea of racial unity, racial identity to it. And we can't now, because thanks to the empire, we have a lot of communities in these islands uh, which have emerged over the last century, century and a half. They've come from other parts, just as the Angles and the Saxons did, and they're here, and they're not going away. They are now part of this experiment in finding out what Englishness is.
2: If Bede says uh, the English are a chosen people, what, what does that mean that the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish are in that context? Maybe even the Cornish, if, we, if we're looking at that in that sense.
3: Well, for Bede, the Scots, the Welsh, the uh, Cornish, uh, the Irish were not God's chosen people. It was the English. Uh, and it was a very convenient ideology for the power brokers within the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms because uh, the, the the top men emerging out of that to create a single entity could say that they were at the heart of this chosenness.
2: So Bede says that the, the, the English are the chosen people um, and, and, and the English obviously can buy into that but, but if you were a Scottish person at the time wouldn't that have made you feel somewhat dispossessed?
3: Well, of course, there wasn't a thing called Scottishness either. Uh, There were Anglo-Saxons in uh, what we now call the lowlands of Scotland who spoke English. And there were Celts further north than that. There had been people called Picts as well. You might say, uh, and this is going to annoy a lot of your listeners, Scottishness is not Englishness. It is an amalgam of peoples who speak completely different languages, English and Gaelic. And they find an identity because the English have this sense of being special. The people uh, who are territorially, under the, those who call themselves the kings of England, separated off from the Anglo-Saxons to their north, and those Anglo-Saxons became Scots alongside these Gaelic-speaking peoples uh, in the highlands of Scotland who had much more of a link with the Irish. So uh, there is a sense in, in which the creation of Englishness actually helps to create these other identities in these islands.
2: We've got an interesting piece in our current issue, uh, which, which looks at the writings of Jocelyn of Furness, a, uh, I think a 12th century uh, monk up in the Lake District. And those writings seem to suggest that, that someone living in that part of what's now England didn't necessarily see themselves as English. They were quite in, attuned to, to Scottish, Welsh and Irish saints and, 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 and had loyalties beyond the boundaries of England. So had the idea taken hold?
3: There are all sorts of competing identities, and I think that's one thing you always need to remember in history, that what is there now is not necessarily what you'd expect to be there. So in the north of England, it was perfectly natural to look north. And it was perfectly natural for Anglo-Saxons in what we now call Scotland to look, say, to Durham. And you can look at buildings. You can look at Durham Cathedral and its architectural influence on buildings in what is now Scotland. So that's one possibility. The other one, of course, is that in 1066 uh, we gained a new monarchy in these islands, which came from what is now France. And so there could well be a competing identity of those loyal uh, to the successors of William the Conqueror, the Angevin Empire of the 12th century. That could have been a new identity for a people in Western Europe. It didn't last. Uh, It went by the early 13th century. And that moment is really quite significant because it means after that a people in these islands with a king in Winchester or London, think of themselves as different from the people over the water in what is now France. And the relationship becomes a very tense one, a hundred years of warfare in the 14th and 15th century, for instance.
2: Okay. And then moving that story on, you you talked a little bit about Henry VIII, and and basically you are saying he was was very adept in in turning this story on his head to suit his own, um, what he needed to happen. How did he do that?
3: It's really quite simple. Uh, You are the monarch in a country. God has put you there. The Pope has got in the way of the wishes of this monarch. And therefore, the Pope has got in the way of the wishes of God. And so you take all the imagery of England as a new Israel, a chosen people, and you just subtract the Pope. And you say the Pope is the enemy, therefore Englishness consists of uh, hating the Pope. It's it's a a really clever trick. And you can use a lot of existing legends about the arrival of Christianity. And you can say, forget that man Augustine who came from Rome in 597. Look way beyond him, back to King Lucius of Britain, the first king ever to accept Christianity. Look to Joseph of Arathea, who turned up in Glastonbury, and Joseph uh, had known Jesus Christ and and may even have brought him here uh, as a young man. You've got all these legends, which were already there, and you take them and turn them to this project of making England special, but in the end, Protestant.
2: And, and people accepted that and, and went with Henry, well, uh, in part.
3: Yes, um, Henry's subjects bought this because uh, he's telling them ancient stories associated with places they know and people they've heard of. So uh, it, it, it's a creative refocusing, if you like, of history or returning history around in a different direction.
2: So why, why now explore this story? I mean, obviously you've talked about the, the, the question mark over the, the various nationalities that make up the UK and, and that's um, something which is clearly playing on the minds of people. But is there is there an underlying story that you as a, as a, a professor of church history have, have got something to, to, an axe to grind here because are, are, do people not take enough note of religion in, in history? Is it something which you think's overlooked?
3: I think... In the past, people uh, have not paid enough attention to religion in history. And I I say in the past, so the last hundred years. And that's changing, very interestingly, very gratifyingly. And I think our series is a symptom of that change. People are are taking religion seriously. Not that they may may believe in it, they see it's important. That's really uh, what excites me. Uh, And what I'm saying in this series is that religion has been absolutely central to English identity, created by religion, sustained by religion, changed by religion. And what do we do now when this country has become something else, where it's become a country of many faiths or none, yet it still has an established church, for instance? Uh, And what do we do with this very different set of cultures all of whom now might claim to be English. I, I, I want viewers to think about that and consider uh, what that might mean for the future.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: That was Professor Sir Dermot McCulloch. His BBC Two series, How God Made the English, is starting imminently. Now we have a short advert.
4: John Welshman's new book Titanic The Last Night of a Small Town marks the centenary of the sinking of the Titanic on 15th of April 1912. His book lays bare 12 life stories from the doomed voyage. Here he gives a taste of some of those life stories.
5: A lot of the books that have been written recently about the Titanic have uh, focused on the issue of myth, but what I really wanted to do was to focus on the stories of just 12 Uh, people, a combination of passengers and crew. Most of us have been passengers on a ship or uh, an aeroplane, but when we arrive at the destination, perhaps we've only just found out the the name of the person sitting next to us, nothing more about their lives. But of course, when a flight or a a voyage ends in disaster, the the lives of these people are laid, uh, laid bare. One of the people that I feature is a woman called Hannah Tuma, who was traveling from a small village in Assyria. Uh, she traveled uh, to Beirut by camel cam- caravan and then on a freighter to France and joined the Titanic at uh, Cherbourg. Her husband was already working in the United States in Michigan and she was traveling with her two children. Another of the stories that I feature is a woman called Violet Jessup, who is a stewardess on the Titanic. I think her story is a very interesting one because it uh, reveals uh, a lot about her life. And in fact, when her story was told originally in the uh, 1930s, she, she had to use a pseudonym because she was still working for the White Star Line. A woman called Ellen Hakkarainen was a Finnish migrant. She was traveling with her husband uh, to the United States, where in fact she had already been, been working. And I was keen to include her story because uh, I was interested in migration, particularly the experiences of Scandinavian migrants. And sadly, her husband, Pekka, uh, was drowned. And then the last story that I'll mention is a girl called Edith Brown. She was travelling from South Africa uh, with her parents, and her father was hoping to set up a hotel business uh, in Seattle. Edith and her mother survived, but sadly her, her father was, uh, was drowned. So the book uh, features on these 12 individuals and uh, I think one of the uh, attractions of it is that we can all identify with how these people uh, behaved when they were faced uh, with the prospect of disaster and the prospect of, of death.
4: Titanic, the last night of a small town, is published by Oxford University Press and is available from all good bookshops. Visit www.oup couk
0: history for more information and to enter the Titanic competition.
2: For our next interview, throughout history, soldiers have written letters to their loved ones to be read in the event of their deaths. Sean Price has spent several years collecting these letters for her book, if you're reading this, last letters from the front line. BBC History Magazine's Rob Attar spoke to her recently about how soldiers chose to say goodbye and the impact these messages had on those who were left behind.
0: What first interested you in these farewell letters?
4: Um, Well, the actual idea for the the book about the farewell letters came from a Radio 4 documentary that I made uh, about three years ago. Um, And I've always been fascinated with military history, but in particular, the more human stories behind the sort of bold statistics of war. So, It it sort of married up the the two, in effect, you know, my interest in in the military, but also finding out the real stories of of the men, um, you know, fighting in wars. How did
0: you track down these letters?
4: Uh, well, it took me three years um, and it took me all over the globe really looking for these farewell letters um, Because the problem is with the historical ones they they're not always catalogued in archives as a farewell letter So it was a case of going to archives going to record offices um, visiting military museums and military archives um, and literally trawling through hundreds and thousands of letters in search of the particular in the event of my death or farewell letter that I used in the book. Um, In the book, I I looked at nine conflicts in total, um, starting with the Napoleonic Wars and then going right through to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, So the majority of the older letters came from archives, but the the more recent letters, the Falklands, um, Iraq and Afghanistan, overwhelmingly came from um, actual families um, who I'd made personal contact with. um, And, you know, they they were willing um, in most instances to share letters and and share the emotions um that they they had sort of reading and receiving those letters how
0: common would it have been for a soldier to write one of these farewell letters
4: um well it's difficult to say um how common they were um i mean certainly it, it seemed to me that the soldiers have been writing these types of letters pretty much since, um, you know, soldiers have been literate. Um, and I think there was, there was something quite profound about going into a war situation that, that forces you to, you know, confront the possibility that you might not make it back. Through history, I mean, there's certainly been no formalised system um, or sort of advice given to to write a farewell letter. Um, sort of going back to the Napoleonic Wars, I, I simply think it was something that, that men took it upon themselves themselves to do um, going through to the the sort of the, the First World War and the Second World War the Second World War um, men would often write them on the eve of a great battle or when they they'd been through um, a traumatic event um, and I think you know in, in a lot of instances that was a prompt for a farewell letter likewise I read countless of. Um, Accounts of um, men who'd had a premonition that they weren't going to make it through and and that became a prompt for a farewell letter um, as we sort of move into more recent decades. Um, Again, it's not a formalised system or a formalised... piece of advice that they should write one of these letters but in in welfare briefings that all soldiers get before they deploy um it's something that's suggested to them because welfare officers see the families and see the effect that these letters have and the comfort that they can give um but it's still voluntary i think it's you know it's really been up to the individual and that will continue to be so
0: the letters that you have managed to get hold of in, in these cases have the soldiers always died or did some of them survive
4: no, in the, in the book, I'd say that the letters I've included, um, probably 80% of the the, the, the writers tragically died, um, but say about 20% you know actually survived, um, and it was fascinating for me when I I could sort of get hold of a letter where someone had survived, um, to actually be able to talk to that individual about the emotions they had of of sitting down and composing and, and writing a letter like that, um, because that's when you really get inside the mind of, of a soldier and you know understand what a, a kind of place they're in when they, they write that letter and, and how difficult they are to write in fact,
0: who were they addressing these letters to? <laughs>
4: Um, the letters are addressed to um, a variety of people, really, um, and again, it, it, it does vary from conflict to conflict. Um, I mean, certainly, the First World War stood out for the number of farewell letters addressed to mums and grandparents, um, and I think you know that's symptomatic of the the age of these these soldiers. I mean, they were incredibly young young men. Most of them, you know, wouldn't have been married. Um, the the uh, Napoleonic Wars and the American Civil War, um, overwhelmingly letters to wives um, and, and children. Um, and and then, you know, moving through to the, the Falklands War, more recent conflicts, um, it has overwhelmingly been wives and girlfriends. And... Um, But it's really to, you know, to to your loved ones. Um, Some people write more than one. Um, You know, I certainly came across uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen who'd written to one to their children, one to their wife, one to their grandparents. Um, There was even one chap who'd written one letter to his wife and and one to a woman he'd had a passionate affair with. So um, I think, you know, when when you're facing up to the possibility you might not make it, um, you know, it's, it's an insurance policy in a way to make sure you say goodbye to the the people who mean most to you.
0: What would you say was the mood and the the tone of the letters they were writing?
4: Um, The mood and the tone um, is quite different, actually, um, according to which conflict, you know, the the letters came from. Um, I mean, certainly the Napoleonic War letters, uh, you know, from from the late um, 18th century onwards, um, were very sort of restrained um, in their emotion um, and and sort of matter of fact in in you know if if I get killed then you know here's a list of instructions here's a list of things I want you to do um, uh, but also very concerned with with the loved ones knowing that they died in a in a noble cause in something they described as as, as noble and um, In the uh, American Civil War the the letters are overwhelmingly religious in tone um, and that religiosity is is really bound up with this fierce patriotism you know whichever side they they were fighting on Um, but the the religious fervor of those letters I mean is astonishing and again that's a sign of the times Um, you know it was a very religious uh, point in American history Um, but it was also uh, Um, a way that men found comfort. If they could um, know they would die and that would bring them closer to God, then they felt at peace with themselves and, and, um, you know, it it gave them a sense of comfort, I think, as well as their families um, at home. Um, The Boer War and the Zulu War, those letters stood out because they were so incredibly short. Um, All the other letters through history had been quite long, Um, quite verbose often and poetic. These were quite often just one line at the end of a normal letter home, um, which would often say something like, you know, if I fall, do not vex for me. Um, And, uh, you know, this, this is obviously... Part of the you know the, the the Victorian stiff upper lip coming through, um, but again um, I think it was the nature of those conflicts. They were highly mobile. Um, soldiers were often ambushed um, and obviously wouldn't have had time to sit down and, and compose a long letter. Um, I mean, going through to the First and the Second World War, they had quite striking similarities in the the sort of enthusiasm in a way that, that sort of came through those letters um, and, and an absolute belief that they were taking part in an action that would change the world. And in that final letter, as well as the message of love, they absolutely wanted that to be patently clear that they went willingly um, to their fate. They were willing to sacri- sacrifice their themselves on the altar of changing the world um, and wanted that fact publicized I mean many urged their mums or the recipients of those letters to to put them out there in the public domain so people could learn lessons um, so you know the a, a war like that would never happen again I mean tragically it, it did but um, they, they really stand out for that that patriotism um, and that absolute belief Whatever side that that someone was on, I mean, that was common to German letters, uh, American letters, British ones, um, Japanese, Italian. um, I mean, quite astonishing. Um, And then I think as we come to the more recent letters... um, they've really charted a change in men's motivations for going to war. So the, the farewell letter, again, is, is overwhelmingly preoccupied with love um, and sort of comfort for those left behind. But it's also a reaffirmation, I think, of, of dying for a job that you love um, and an absolute pride in being a professional service man or woman, um, as opposed to a real passion um, for the cause. It's, it's become about a love for the job and, and doing what's required of you as a professional
0: Now how did the soldiers feel about the prospect of death? Were they scared about what might happen to them?
4: Um, the, the, throughout history it was very difficult to find any chink of fear in, in farewell letters and um, which was quite unusual, because often if you, if you read a, a ward, um a sort of personal diary alongside the farewell letters, sometimes it would be in the diary that they would, would admit their fears and, and their, you know, the, the fact that they were scared. Um, rarely would they put that into a farewell letter. Um, and I think because the farewell letter from from people i've spoken to and and the thousands i've read i mean the purpose of that letter is to comfort your loved one you're leaving behind um and to leave a piece of yourself behind um and to make a statement really about what what you believe in Um, and i think to fill that letter with thoughts um that, that you were scared you were terrified um you know, I think would be tremendously upsetting for a loved one to read and I think consciously soldiers didn't dwell on the fact they were scared. I mean the the sheer fact they were writing a farewell letter obviously meant they, you know, they, they knew that death was a possibility, but I think to sort of, to actually write that down and articulate it in one way was to tempt fate, but in another way w- would provide no no more comfort to, to someone at home and, and in fact, um, you know, I think that they're written with with that loved one in mind and they wouldn't want their loved one to think they were sat there hunched in a trench or um you know sat in a dugout petrified even though obviously they they would have been
0: so the letters don't necessarily give us a, a true picture of their state of mind at the time. It's it's more of an unselfish act, something to help their families.
4: Um I think I think so. I mean I the the beauty of what, what I did with the research and with the book was that um the farewell letter for me was really the starting point um, and once I'd found that I then went back through their other correspondence um, and tried to track down family um, You know family and relations and descendants to really build up a full picture of that person um, And it was interesting that sometimes the the letters they would have written um, outside of the farewell letter were very different language and um, different emotions um, and 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 you've sort of got a real rounded sense of of an individual um, through reading all of their correspondence. But, yeah, the farewell letter was, was always a different, you know, had a different tone to it, inevitably. And
0: something that you mentioned earlier was that some of these soldiers would leave instructions in their farewell letters. What kind of instructions would they be?
4: um well all soldiers um i mean these days that they have to write a will before they deploy to um um a war zone um and you know that's that's been happening um since the first world war and, and earlier um but many took it upon themselves to put instructions um that maybe you wouldn't put in a formal will in their letters so um particularly with a lot of the recent letters many of the boys were were writing about what they wanted their funerals to be like what songs they wanted played um you know the the sort of cocktails they wanted people to drink um and, and you know, that there was a there was a lovely letter from the second world war um where the, the the, the boy was was well, he was a boy. He was 18. He was tragically killed Al um, Alamein um, And he was very much preoccupied with the you know, the three songs that should be pe- played at his funeral um, In in the Kirk in, in Scotland um, So they've really been instructions for funerals. They've also been advice for children um, You know, there's several letters that, that fathers have written to their children and um, which ranged from the in the napoleonic wars one beautiful letter written with instructions that the, the the best way the sons in that family could honor their father's memory was to join the army um, and and he that would make the the father proud um again, uh, instructions for their children's education. There was a, a great letter from the First World War from a British soldier who wanted his son to follow in his footsteps and, and go to law school. Um, so, instructions like that. And then even down to, uh, there was a couple of letters, again, from the Napoleonic Wars, um, telling wives where they'd left, um, you know, a bit of money in a certain drawer, um, a, a beautiful letter from the American Civil War. And... Um, detailing which clothes um if if this soldier had fallen in battle which clothes should go to to which person in in the family because it would be a cold winter and um you know the the brother would be grateful for for an overcoat so all, all manner of things really it's um you know really, really interesting reading
0: do you think perhaps by by focusing on practical details like that that help take their mind off what might be happening to them
4: um, I think so I mean I, I inevitably in in any war situation there are long periods where where men um, are, you know in most most war situations there are long periods where men are sat around and, and nothing much is happening you know there's an awful lot of thinking time um and and I think it's the the sort of more mundane details that make their way into letters are, are partly due to you know having a couple of hours to sit down and you know your thoughts ramble and you know you just want to pour everything out but um, in another way I mean those farewell letters are so important perhaps it's a way of ensuring you've covered every single base imaginable um, and also um, with a lot of the longer letters I almost got a sense there was a reluctance to to finish them to sign off because at the moment you Said goodbye in that letter and closed it up. That was the moment that that letter was finished, um, and that could become your effectively your last will and testament. So um, there was a reluctance I felt um, f- to, to end those letters sometimes, and that's why they they could often um, be quite lengthy. And
0: what kind of impact did these letters have on the people who received them?
4: Um, it's almost indescribable. Um, to... You know the impact that these letters have on families. Um, I mean I was lucky enough to speak to descendants as far back as um, the Napoleonic Wars um, it, there was a, a, a man who'd had a letter which had been passed through the generations. It had been um, found at the back of a writing desk um, through to a family um, whose great uh, you know, great uncle had been killed in the First World War um, and then through to Falkland's widows um, and bereaved family Um, of soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And overwhelmingly, they all told me the same thing, that um, that letter is just the most priceless object they could ever have. Um, There's something quite profound about touching a piece of paper and holding a piece of paper that you know your loved one has actually touched and written written on. Um, and in reading that letter, it's when you can once again be as close as possible to, to that loved one and you can hear that person saying those words that are written down. Um, and there is a lovely quote from from one mum whose son was, was killed in Afghanistan um, who basically said, you know, you can have memories of words spoken but words written down last forever um and you know that that's something quite profound for families and um if they remain in families they get passed through the generations as a precious heirloom so that person's never forgotten um or you know a lot of them are, are bequeathed to archives for um future generations to to learn from um and and enjoy in in a sort of um a very poignant way, I guess.
0: And these are clearly very poignant letters. Did you find it quite an emotional experience producing this book?
4: Um, yes, incredibly emotional. Uh, I mean, as I say, it took three years um, and a lot of tears, really, to, to, to put it together. And... Um, the hardest thing for me was meeting bereaved relatives um, and being there whilst they got that letter out and read it for me. Um, and it was tremendously powerful to, to just be sat in a room with someone reading that letter um, which puts them right back in that place right back at the time they received that letter that they got the knock at the door. Um, you know, it's, it's so painful for them. Um, but they can take comfort from, from the letter. Um, but I find that very difficult because ultimately you're asking people to share something that's very personal, very private. Um, and it is the sort of very essence of their loved ones. Um, I think many of them wanted to share them because it was cathartic for them to do so and also because they wanted people to know, you know, this, this was my husband, this was my son and he was a really great guy um, and wanted to get that message out of there. Um, but even going back through through history, I mean, the, the letters... I th- there, there were accounts that a few mothers had written um, of the impact of that letter, from, and particularly from the First World War, where um, their sons had written a letter. They're, they're just such precious objects, which provide such immense comfort in, in a time of loss. And, and for that reason, they are just priceless.
0: So are there any common themes that, that developed in the letters that you've studied?
4: um yeah the the astonishing thing over you know over 300 years of these um letters that that i put in the book is that there's one theme that that unites them all regardless of rank nationality age or sex and and that's this message of love um to those they've left behind um and and that's why i think these letters are, are great levelers and um really give a human face to soldiers and to these bold statistics of, of um, the, the, the fallen in battle, um, you know, they're, they're all individuals, they're all human beings and they all leave behind loved ones. Um, and, and that's patently clear in, in the letters.
2: That was Shawn Price. Her book, If You're Reading This, Last Letters from the Frontline, is available now from Frontline Books. That's it for this week's episode. Next week we'll be delving into the history of the FBI and asking why it is that nations fail, which is quite a deep question to ponder. So I'm sure it'll be a diverting discussion. BBC History Magazine's website is historyextra.com. If you go there, you'll find details of our latest subscription offers, along with a weekly history quiz, roundup, history news, book reviews, image galleries, and features are plenty to keep you busy. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you very much for listening.